Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garrismovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, finally taking care of the most pressing task on my list of things to do, which is clearing out my inbox, which I have not done for about six months or more. I figure why do any of my actual work when I can busy myself with stuff like that? It's... Uh, I know not all productivity is good, but sometimes just doing things feels good, even though it's just not really doing that much for you. Sure. It would be good if I could just do other things, though. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think they, they have a, what is it, Adderall for that, but that really depends on whether or not sure. you have a couple other things. Yeah. I mean, a diagnosis yeah. doesn't guarantee it. I have a diagnosis for ADHD and I still can't get uh, medication for it. And now we have to do the podcast. That's it. <laughs> Now we've got to do that. Well, I'm Cameron Lalana, and I've been working overnight shifts this week, which means there's not as many staff in the station, so I get to chat with people more, including the security guard, from whom I heard some fascinating things about American history. Uh, today, mm -hmm. she pulled me aside and told me about the real history of America. She said, you know, Columbus wasn't the first person here. And I said, oh, yeah, like Leif Erikson. And she's like, no, Iraqis came here first. And I said, mm -hmm. oh, She's like, yeah, if you look really closely, you know, Mexican similar has a lot of similarity to Iraqi culture. That's because modern Mexicans are descendants of Iraqis and the Native Americans. And I said, oh, and she said, and there was another vis early visitor. It was the Spanish. They got there before Columbus, but we don't talk about that. And I said, this is a fascinating view on American history. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever heard of that one before, but thank you for sharing. Yeah, yeah. There's a new perspective on things. I don't, you know, you love, you love a new perspective. Yeah, I don't know what you really what you say in that. <laughs> I said, oh, really? That's interesting. That's nice. Uh, I need to go do anything else. <laughs> well, this is a podcast about alternative history where me and my good pal Cameron <laughs> get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we march on in our War and Peace series. We are doing part three of book two. I kind of thought like, hey, this is a, a shorter part. Maybe we won't have as much to talk about. And then before this, I was compiling my notes and I was like, I don't have too much to talk about now. And then you remember that even though it's a shorter part, it takes place over two years. Yeah, that did it. That really did me in, I think. Yeah, I think it would. Well, yeah. so after investing all this time in this part, specifically about two years of in-book time with War and Peace, you probably want to make sure that you're getting the most out of your reading. That's why you need to head on over to patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy, where we post a reading guide for each episode that includes quick commentary on major quotes and themes. Uh, plus, once a month during this series, we're hosting a Patreon-only reading group to discuss everything we didn't get to discuss on the show. If you're not interested in Patreon but still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our very fancy-schmancy website, tipsytolstoy.com. One of my friends this week told me that our show looked very commercial, and I'm not quite sure what to make of that. <laughs> I, I took it as a nice compliment. <laughs> you fucking capitalist sellout pig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's another way i could have taken it but i chose right. not to <laughs> it's i guess it's all in the tone which we don't need to we don't need to clarify no no i let it i let it stand <laughs> <laughs> well before we get into it we need to ask matt what biz alcoholica uh talk do you have today that's not the correct formulation yes i am drinking an orange peel wit from untitled art it's a brewing company in wisconsin and it is also non-alcoholic but packs a punch of flavor <laughs> it's good i'm enjoying it walk me through what are the tasting notes here orange orange and i love that fake beer <laughs> <laughs> 
That's what I would say. I have hints of not getting scurvy. Yes. I, well, yes, that and also not getting buzzed. So right. it's it's perfect for uh, this part of War and Peace, <laughs> which I would like to be just stone cold sober to discuss. Sure. That makes sense. What have you got over there on the uh, other side of the land pond? <laughs> you, have the, you have the craft beer for today. Uh, I have, uh, as we've discussed before, big fan of Japanese beer. I didn't happen to have any fancy, one hands, uh, fancy ones on hand. Um, so I am bringing to the table today a Sapporo Premium, which is okay. not fancy, but it is accessible and it is very good. And honestly, among mainstream beers, outside of PBR, Sapporos are like some of the best cheaper ones you can get. All right. Cameron going on record as a, a PBR lad. You know, PBRs, Modellos, and Sapporos. I'm, okay. I'm willing to take that stand. Okay. uh before we get into this part is there anything you wanted to open up with or go over before we start well we did have a brief discussion on this before we started and i am going to steal uh my joke back for the show that i told you (laughs) beforehand because i thought it was very funny it was and really this is the hot or not chapter i think Mm -hmm. two years have gone by Everyone's grown up to, well, an age where I guess when Tolstoy was writing, it was appropriate to call someone hot or not. And (laughs) even though that's a little murky, but (laughs) that's what this chapter is. Everybody (laughs) becomes hot or not by the end of this chapter. Tolstoy is very much, uh, welcome to Hollywood Access. I'm Leo Tolstoy, and today we're going to be talking about hot or not. Now, this is Natasha Rostova. Now, two years ago, she was not a hot because she was 14 and that's not a crime yet, but to other people and other times, it may be. However, she's now 16, so I can officially label this one full-on hottie. Someone go ahead and put down a marriage proposal. <laughs> <laughs> can I get multiple marriage proposals, actually? Multiple. <laughs> you, you multiple. That's true. There, there are a lot of 30-year-old men involved in this. Yes. Well, she's only hot so long as she's not anxious, more or less, throughout the show. Sure. So that's fun. I wish yeah. I could say... When I'm talking about the child marriage part of War and Peace, I <laughs> wish I could say I'm referring to a specific part. No. However, that's becoming a more general theme here, unfortunately, which is not intended, obviously, by Tolstoy. Yeah. Um, however, really hard to ignore. <laughs> it's a little bit less Sweet Home Alabama and a little bit more Sweet Home My God Am I Uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so. Right. It's a little more. Um, it's, what's, the, what's the Tolstoy estate? Yasna Apollyana. It's a little more sweet home Yasna Apollyana at this point. <laughs> this is its own brand. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but uh, we've committed to reading this much. We're, we're going all the way through. Yep, yep. I'm glad. I wish I, I'm still writing down Sweet Home Alabama alerts in my notes, and I don't always write down the context, so we're going to have to figure that one out together. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, let's, let's get into it. Please. For t- two years passes, literally in the span of a sentence. Uh, Prince Andre out in the countryside. You know, his wife is dead. He's just out there doing country stuff to find a new way of doing things. He's done with the military. And he starts implementing all the same reforms that Pierre was trying to do, except he does it successfully. And frankly, as the text notes, without much effort. <laughs> um, <laughs> he spends most of his time on his own estate, which is away from his father's estate. He's getting it, it in order. He's also preparing another state for his son. And he's basically like, you know, my life is over which is really put forth mostly when he's looking at a tree and, and notices that it's gnarled and old. And he's like, it's just <laughs> that, that tree is just like me for real, for real. 
Um, can, can we mention that he's, he's 31? Oh. <laughs> he is 31. <laughs> um <laughs> sorry for most of our audience your life is done <laughs> yeah yeah about one fourth of you <laughs> sorry to tell you but Tolstoy says you're out of here it's, a, it's it that's it 16 in 31 out <laughs> <laughs> oh this is the episode full of that's going to be full of sketchy jokes um so for various reasons pierre has to <laughs> matt's already saying the pr nightmare emerging uh from my mouth Pierre has to get Pierre. My rights are Andre has to go to the Rostov estate to deal with some things. And and while he's there, he's he's just like kind of crotchety all the time. He's really taken on this old man persona pretty thoroughly. And he sees the 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 girls in the house, Natasha, um, to a much lesser degree, Vera, uh, Sonia, just having a good time. And he's basically like, why? Why would you why would you be having fun? What possible reason could you do that? And it unsettles him so much that he as he's like listening to Natasha play that he leaves early the next day without even finishing their business. And as he's going home, he comes across the same tree. And now suddenly after listening to some teenagers play, he no longer finds it gnarled and old, but rather just a normal tree. And he thinks to himself, uh, my life isn't over. I'm only 31. Well, I, I think, I think he was kind of into Natasha. Yeah. Well, yeah, that is the, yes, yeah. that is. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, you know, the tree has life. <laughs> sure. Andre is taking on the English college professor method of finding youth again by looking mm-hmm. for a relationship with a teenager. <laughs> 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 Look, if you, 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 not that this is your department, but if you've ever hung, hung around for anyone listening to an MFA department, tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> 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 i'm just gonna let that one stand i'm not gonna edit it out <laughs> we, don't, we aren't monetized cameron, cameron gets himself canceled it's done <laughs> i give I get myself canceled by the pervert college professors of america yeah yeah that's fair <laughs> hey listen here pal if you ever want to go to an mfa program you're done <laughs> um so he he now that he's back in the country, he suddenly finds life unbearably dull. These, these last two years, which have been fine, now it's just, what am I doing here? Why aren't I in the big city? So he makes plans to go to Petersburg uh, in the following summer. And suddenly everything seems much lighter as he's getting ready for that. Even his portrait of his wife no longer seems so uh, accusing. What he Now when he, he looks at her, to quote the text, uh, he would turn away to the portrait of dead Lisa, who with hair curled a la Grec, looked tenderly and daily adam from the guilt frame she did not say she did not now say those former terrible words to him but looked simply merrily and inquisitively at him isn't that the most egregious change though (laughs) 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 suddenly my wife would no longer be angry at me now that i'm uh changing my whole life because of a teenager yes yeah yes no that sounds like that how that would go (laughs) yeah probably (laughs) so uh, he he heads to to Petersburg later in in uh, 1809 in August, and at this time there are a couple big changes being considered: uh, the abolition of of court ranks and introducing examinations for for certain levels of of of, of those ranks. I think it's a state councilor and one other rank, which, like the highest ones, which up to that point have been kind of a hereditary, not a hereditary, but basically a right of the nobility. And this is creating huge uh, uproar because. 
this would mean they might have to prove themselves, which is Boo. tough. <laughs> <laughs> so as he, he's hanging out in the city and he's putting forth proposals, uh, he's running into uh, some problems. He doesn't have a very good relationship with the emperor. Um, and he doesn't have a very good relationship with some of the, the counselors he goes to meet, although he does get a committee assignment, though without pay. But while there, it should be noted that everyone wants to see Andre. He's the talk of the town. He's wanted to be seen by the young men who want to have an intellectual conversation. He wants to be met by the reformers because they believe, based on his reforms on his own estates, that he is amenable to their way of doing things. He's met by the conservatives because of his father, who believe that they might find a sympathetic soul in you know the, the son of um, Nikolai Balkonsky. He's liked by the the women who want interesting people for their salons. Everyone wants him, but that is just a different way of saying is he hot or not? <laughs> Andre, number, our... character number two, is he hot or not? We'll find out. <laughs> Welcome back to All Access Hollywood. I'm Leo Tolstoy. Now, this man <laughs> thought he was a knob, but it turns out that's all in your head. After looking at an oak tree the right way, Prince <laughs> Andre Balkonsky is now officially a stone cold hot. <laughs> This, this is going to be great for TikTok. We're going to be doing numbers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is going to be by far labeled my most annoying bit. Mm -hmm. So while in the city, he again finds everyone just dreary. Now, that's with the exception of one man, Speransky. Speransky is now one of the most important people in Petersburg, a former uh, theological student. He has now got the ear of the emperor, and he's really pushing forward a lot of the reforms. Uh, and so he's the only one that Balkonsky really likes, accepts, or even approves of. As it said in the text, in Balkonsky, so many people seemed contemptible and insignificant creatures, and he longed to find someone in the in, in someone the living ideal of that perfection toward which he strove, and that he readily believed in Speransky. Uh, he had in, in Speransky he believed he had found this ideal of a perfectly rational and virtuous man. Had Speransky sprung up from the same class as himself and possessed the same breeding and traditions, Balkonsky would have soon discovered on his weak human unheroic sides. But as it was, Speransky's strange and logical turn of mind inspired him with respect all the more because he did not quite understand him. And that's a hugely beneficial relationship for him. Now, this lasts up until the point where he goes to a personal party. This will, will come later, but we may as well uh, to avoid having to jump back and forth too much uh, to a personal party of Speransky's in which Speransky is just a normal guy. And so suddenly, as happens with, with Andre's life, which we'll talk about, he has this another sudden change, this sudden change from thinking he's old to thinking maybe I'm young again. Well, not young, but, you know, my life isn't over yet. And coming to Petersburg and thinking this sudden change of it's city life is where it's at. Speransky is the only real one. And seeing Speransky as a normal person, not as some strange other, suddenly makes him lose all respect for the man almost immediately. And could you say Speransky, not hot. He's not not a hot, nope. not hot. Not with those big, fat, white hands that Tolstoy keeps <laughs> talking about in a really uncomfortable way. Not hot. Mm -mm, nope. Full on, naughty hottie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> speaking about things that are not really associated, naughty, naughty hottie things. Uh, two years ago, Pierre has also come back to Petersburg and has taken a leading position among the Freemasons. Uh, any Freemasons there, please don't come for me for calling this uh, experience naughty hottie. Uh, and so even though he is in a leading role in this organization for kind of a 
sort of Christian virtuousness, he really doesn't change much about his life. Uh, he continues to dine and drink well, and he considers it immoral and, and frankly humiliating uh, that he could not resist the temptations of his batch life. He continues nonetheless. Uh, however, that being said, it's also dissatisfaction he feels with others. Don't worry, it's not something he just limits to himself. He He's dissatisfied with everyone involved. Although the order is theoretically supposed to have some level of anonymity, of course, everyone knows who the members of the order are, and he also knows who they are in public life. Now, that's problematic for him because he begins to realize that there are different categories of people. Now, there are some who are true believers and who are trying to find the theor unravel the theological mysteries of their order, which he does respect. There are the people who are trying to bring order, uh, run the organization, really do the work in which class he belongs and, frankly, few others. And then there are the other two, which are carousers, people who are just interested in the aesthetics, people who just like the social connections. Um, and he begins to be really dissatisfied with that. In order to dissolve this dissatisfaction, he goes abroad. And after some time, about a year to a year and a half, he returns. And everyone's super excited until he gives a speech in which he basically says, we need to create a form of universal governance, which is designed to combat all human vice. Uh, of course, uh, not interfering with normal actual governance our provenance is like the soul basically uh, he says we must form we must found a form of government holding universal sway which should be diffused over the whole world without destroying the bonds of citizenship and beside which all other governments can continue in their customary course and do everything except what impedes the great aim of our order which is to obtain for virtue the victory over vice and that speech does not go down well people not think not mm -hmm. not hot full-on mm -hmm. zero out of ten People think you've been infected by Illuminism, Illuminism in this case referring to uh, okay. the Bavarian. He could be an Illuminati hottie. However, <laughs> that is reserved for, you know, that would be only hot, I think, to a certain type of person. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not a universal hotism per se. No, it's a relative hotism, which we'll, <laughs> we'll accept that. I think sure. that's a valid form. Yeah, Pierre, half hot. Half hot. Continue. <laughs> so he's accused of you know of being influenced by the illuminati in this case the bavarian illuminati which uh held on traditions of republicanism um you know against monarchism so basically it's like they're indirectly calling him uh sort of you want to overthrow the monarchy that's what you're trying to do here by this speech of creating a secret government to fight uh vice it doesn't go down well pierre is struck by depression he, you know, goes home and just laid out in the couch for days until finally he goes and sees his sponsor, one of the ones who originally got him into the order and asks, what should I do? Here's what here's what I, I believe. And the guy says, look, yeah, maybe we are about fighting virtue or finding fighting vice. However, remember what one of the keys of our order is self purification. Don't focus on others. Focus on yourself in such a way that, well, at least in the novel, these Freemasons are uh, thoroughly um impotent force by you you know by being solely directed inward no possibility for changing directional conditions or any belief that they should contain their change directional conditions that's not really a critique i think is made in the book but say la vie uh so he returns uh and and this guy tells him basically look get right in your own life get back with your wife and pierre says okay so after almost two years Pierre goes back to Moscow and resumes his relationship with his wife. He begs her to forgive him for his past wrongs, and they return to, you know, a sort of life together. Now, in his absence, uh, Helena has done quite well for herself. When 
that over two years ago now, the three emperors met at Erfurt. That's when uh, Napoleon, the Russian czar and the Austrian emperor made an end to the war. Uh, Helena was there and she managed to to charm a lot of diplomats and people high up. Even Napoleon, it said, comments on her beauty at a theater. Well, he says, uh, <laughs> look at that creature. Or, so I guess a compliment for the time. Regrettably hot. <laughs> officially endorsed by napoleon <laughs> so she's got this reputation in moscow and she's sort of like a queen of moscow society uh the intellectuals want to come to her and they'll write her like six page letters young men read whole books just before they come to her salons uh in order to have something to say with her um you know diplomats want to come meet her everyone loves helena except for pierre who sees her as sort of a fraudster and he thinks he's not really that smart. I don't see why people are, are doing all of this. And although he's a crotchety, not old man, he's still quite young, but he's still very crotchety and kind of rude to people. But that because only becomes his charm. They've got this sort of relationship where Helena is the, you know, long suffering, very noble wife who everyone loves. And then Pierre is sort of the person who walks around and like, He's like on, you know, on any given newscast, they've got like the theoretical opposition, like having, you know, a liberal on Fox News. That's who's walking around. He's providing the crazy views that everyone else is like, <laughs> you're so funny, Pierre. Um, Helena is so good for putting up with you. So we, from this point forward, we follow Pierre's diaries, his struggles, uh, struggling with jealousy. Helena, you might recall, is growing quite close to Boris in this time, in these two years. Uh, and so he finds a lot of jealousy in that, even though he also inducts Boris into the the Masonic Order. Um, he, he continues to struggle with it. And he has a lot of dreams about visiting his his um, the uh, Joseph Alexeyevich, uh, the person who got or Joseph Alexeyevich, who got him into the order. And in most dreams, he sees him as very sick, because Joseph is, is very sick. He's got, um, I, I think it's a colon, colon disease or a, a liver disease. And in uh, Pierre's dreams, he sees him healed, but he doesn't recognize him. He looks old, and he is changed. Uh, and, and so this part ends with Pierre kind of calling on God, tell him what to do. He's thoroughly lost. Okay, so let's go on to the Rostovs. In these two years, things have not gone well for them. Um, the They're actually losing money every year. So um, the the old count, he comes to, to Petersburg from Moscow to look for an official post so they can earn some money to help pay off their, their many debts that they're accruing every year. And now that they're in Petersburg, although in Moscow society they were well-loved, well-liked, high-class. Here in Petersburg, they're provincials, so no one takes much interest in them. So when an old, well, I'll say loosely friend of ours, Lieutenant, I don't think he's a lieutenant anymore, Berg, who's appeared in and out of the story for the last couple of parts, he proposes to their daughter, Vera. Now, initially, because Berg does not have much station, they kind of laugh off this proposal because, you know, what does Berg bring to the table? However, then they reflect, wait, but no one else is coming to us in this time. And Vera is unimaginably old at the at the age of 24. So will anyone ever marry her again? Also, wow, we <laughs> just kind of hate Vera. That is a certifiable not hot. Vera has been certified not hot by her parents. It's sad, it's sad but it's true. <laughs> so they, they agree to uh, they agree to a marriage between Vera and in Berg, although they're embarrassed at basically being so ready to sell off their daughter, uh, an embarrassment which does not translate into them doing anything <laughs> about it. But 
So <laughs> that's fine. They're books and a character. They're not people I know personally. No. Different different ways of approaching it. And so Berg, uh, you know, although he initially uh, approaches them as just, you know, as the goodness of his own heart, um, he then quickly, after they agree, says, okay, so when can you pay me my dowry? And for this purpose, uh, the Rostovs have put aside some estates for each of their daughters. However, things are in such bad financial states that they've had to sell all those estates. So uh, um, the Count quickly offers uh, Berg 80,000 rubles uh, as an IOU. And Berg says, yeah, that's good. But you give me 20,000 right now or I walk away from this marriage <laughs> in very polite terms of, you know, I'm well, I'm and I need this money in order to put on the you know, normal life of society, as should be expected with your daughter. And if I can't do that, it would be embarrassing for all involved. So obviously, you have to give me 20,000 rubles right now. I mean, it's just a good form on your part. And uh, so uh, after this all goes through, uh, we, we finally come to Boris, to our friend Boris. And he's avoided the Rostovs for near on four years now, since the beginning of the book. Uh, he has not seen them, I believe, you can fact check me on this, since the big, like the, literally the first part of War and Peace when, um, yeah, when 13-year-old Vera yeah, been a and 17-year-old Boris were like, all right, four years, we can get married. Um, and so he, he's been going on about his own life in much the same way that Nikolai is suddenly avoiding you know, marrying his cousin because he's in a stage of his life where things seem exciting and open. And now he can blow past the people who he used to hang out with. Well, his cousin has wanted to marry him. Uh, different ways of phrasing that. <laughs> Sweet. Oh. Um, so he finally comes back after the announcement of, of Vera's marriage to see them again. And he sits down with Vera. Vera, excuse me, sorry. He sits down with Natasha and they kind of reflect <laughs> on how much has changed. And he thinks... I can't hang out with her because I can't marry her because of her family's state, estate uh, or the, the state of their estate. Uh, however, he keeps coming back to hang out with Natasha, um, despite reading daily notes of disapproval from Helena. And this leads to Natasha going to her mother and being like, um, you know, can I should I marry Boris? Can I marry Boris? And her mother says, you cannot. And the next day basically tells Boris, don't come back by here again. Uh, stop trying to marry my teenage daughter. Uh, she's the only person in this book who's like, please stop marrying, trying to marry this teenager. <laughs> she, she's the only one that uh, yep. makes yep. sense. Yeah, when an old man is, well, I not think, old. I mean, I, yep. Boris is like early 20s, but still, um, principle applies that when, when like a 20 year old's trying to marry her teenage daughter, she's like, all right, now I should go to your room. Boris, don't come back here. <laughs> um, yep. Certifiably. <laughs> Good mother. New scale, new scale introduced on the <laughs> Tipsy Tolstoy podcast. Certifiable good parent moments, which we do not give out too often in the books we read. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, going forward, we, we go to a, a, a New Year's Eve party in the end of 1809, and there's a huge ball going on. The Rostovs are attending. This is Natasha's first major ball, and she goes in really excited, but she's not having a good time because, uh, well, I mean, all the important people of Moscow or Petersburg society, excuse me, are there. Uh, the emperor is there. Helena is there. Uh, Natasha's a nobody. It's her first ball. And she's so unhappy about this that she's ready to cry until Andre, who across the room has just been hanging out. Pierre says, hey, look, go dance with Natasha. 
Andre goes over and says, hey, would you like to dance? And keep in mind, Andre is a great dancer. So that leads into a fun night and her and Andre dancing leads to people noticing her and everyone begins to dance. And she becomes, especially after the emperor leaves, you know, a, a big fixture of the ball. And so this is the best night of her life. And Andre, for his part, is suddenly like, oh, all right, I'm going to marry her. Very. Uh, it, I mean, it doesn't happen immediately. At first, it's like, <laughs> what? First, he thinks, well, how funny would it be to marry her? And then he's like, well, if she talks to her cousin next, I'm going to marry her. And then she talks to her cousin. He decides, that's good enough for me. Um, I think half of this book and actually a large portion of Russian literature starts as, bro, wouldn't it be really funny if I did that? <laughs> <laughs> that's basically what being an aristocrat yeah, was pretty much yeah uh, that explains the actions yeah. of so many characters in this book <laughs> yeah basically so um, going forward he begins to spend a lot of time with the family and, and suddenly they begin to kind of accept him although at first they judged him pretty harshly um, and they, he just begins to spend whole afternoons with Natasha you know going forward he, he's like denying that he, there's uh, anything there he's just innocently hanging out with this teenager for like weeks at a time hmm. um so they get berg and vera throw an engagement not really any a party for for newlyweds at which vera takes andre aside and um i think this is where the big hole sweet home alabama alert comes in because she talks about natasha and boris and, and andre and then she she says yeah you know well between cousins intimacy often leads to love and then tolstoy brings back this banger cousinhood is a dangerous neighborhood don't you think so <laughs> <laughs> yes i think okay i think you're right i probably need to stop being a little lazy with our podcast merch and get <laughs> some mugs and shirts with that written on it and I, I don't really want that phrase associated with our podcast but it's kind it's of already happened. <laughs> that'll be on the front and on the back it'll be sweet home alabama sheet music um <laughs> we got we got big ones i got ideas kevin perfect well on, on the front end i had all the stodgy jokes and now in the back end you're you got it so perfect yep i caught the bug <laughs> <laughs> the cousinhood bug. Um, so uh, things are people are noticing that change between them. And Andre goes home. He spends three weeks at home, asking his father for permission to marry this teenager. Um, and his father is pissed about it. You no, can just, I just call her Natasha. I, I could just say Natasha. However, I personally just still stuck on the child marriage part. I know that's not the point of this book, and a little right, much. Okay. But. Okay. Um, okay. So he goes home. His father says, "Look, go abroad for a year. If you do that, and you still want to marry her, you have my blessing." So after three weeks, he goes back to uh, the Rostovs. And should note, in this time, he does not say anything to the Rostovs. So Natasha first gets sad, then kind of mopey. Well, more than mopey. And then suddenly she recovers. And right when she recovers, and says, "Okay, I don't need Andre," uh, he suddenly returns and says, "Look, uh, I'll marry you." And everyone's like, "Uh, uh, okay." He says. Uh, but I got to go abroad for a year. So he spends some time with them. He goes abroad and he and and so he goes abroad and leaves her behind. And although people kind of expected Natasha to act differently, maybe a little more um, longing for, for Andre, uh, people noticed that she re recovers from her uh, what the book calls mental sickness <laughs> suddenly and becomes her old self again. 
uh, with a with a change to her moral physiognomy as a child gets up after a long illness with a changed expression of face. So she goes forward normally, so to speak. Um, she's just living her life. And in um, in Andre's absence on the uh, the estate of a Bald Hills estate, um, the elder Balkonsky now treats Maria even worse. He continually torments Princess Maria's feelings, uh, hurt her feelings, and tormented her, but it cost her no effort to forgive him. Could he be to blame her uh, toward her, or could her father, whom she knew loved her in spite of it all, be unjust? And what is justice? The princess never thought of that proud word justice, although the complex laws of man centered for her in one clear and simple law, the law of love and self-sacrifice taught us by him who lovingly suffered for mankind, though he himself was God. What had she to do with the justice or injustice of other people she had to endure and love, and that she did? Anyway, the Stockholm Syndrome is in deep, as it is for this, for this, uh, for this child of an abusive parent. Balkonsky gets worse in this time and begins to make more and more jokes about himself marrying Princess Borean, which worries uh, Maria immensely. Everyone, everyone in the vicinity, everyone, really. extremely worried. And Maria dreams, yeah, <laughs> myself included. Yeah, this is <laughs> well, well, yeah. So she dreams about fleeing the estate. She lets pilgrims in to talk to, just to chat with them, just to have someone to talk to. And she dreams about taking on their lifestyle of giving everything up, just taking the clothes on her back and going and wandering and becoming a, a pilgrim for God. But she can't do it, and she weeps because she sees herself as a sinner who loves her father, worldly things, too much. And on that bright note, that's where we leave part um, part three of book two. That's definitely the most Tolstoyan element to be written sure. into a character, yeah. I think, so far. So <laughs> it's just an interesting yes. pattern. So do you want to do, do you have a place you want to start or should we take it from the beginning? Let's do it. OK, so let's talk about Andre <laughs> and his sudden turns of face. Oh, Andre. Oh, <laughs> poor, sweet Prince Andre. I, I just wanted to talk on th theories of knowledge, schools of knowledge, and then this big mm. old tree real quick. So Tolstoy lays out two types of knowledge throughout this part that are have been in the book so far and that will continue to be in the book until the point that you are so sick and tired of hearing Tolstoy talk about them that you would rather go do literally anything else in your life than read another, uh, you know, 10 or 15 pages of Tolstoy talking about it. Now, don't stop reading because, you know, obviously great life-changing book that you're embarking on, but uh, you'll get to that point. Uh, and th this is the... <laughs> en enough of my persuading, I know. This is the <laughs> distinction between practical knowledge and sort of theoretical knowledge. And this is a, a big distinction between Pierre and Andre that starts to emerge. Pierre just really... He kind of lacks the propensity for both types of knowledge, unfortunately for him. He really is kind of an oaf here and he starts to implement some of these reforms and he just, he has, he's got nothing, Not, nothing works for him. We talked last time about how basically everyone's just kind of taking advantage of him left and right. And like Karen mentioned, Prince Andre is able to do this basically no problem. And I think that shows this kind of high level of, of practical knowledge that he has and it is a parallel directly to him on the battlefield where he has this sort of almost instinctual knowledge of what he should be doing and how to get things done. But a lot of other people in the book don't have. And that is something that you can see between the, the two men here. And 
I, th- I think part of it has to do with the sort of political space that he occupies in the novel, which is kind of a middle ground, whatever kind of guy. Uh, you mentioned him being courted by both the conservatives and the progressives and the reformers. And Prince Andre doesn't really, I mean, he wants to at one point, you know, sort of get some reforms pushed through, but as he kind of mentions, they're, they're really not anything major or extensive ultimately. And I think that this tree more than anything is symbolic of that. This line where it especially, where it especially says this Oak alone refused to yield to the season's spell. So, he has a lot of different sort of political movements and thinkers that are kind of pulling around him, trying to get him to go to one side or the other. And he's able to kind of withstand and I guess work on this sort of almost instinct, this kind of he's in tune with the old Russia of his father, but he's also not totally antisocial. I mean, through one part of this chapter he is, but on the whole as a character, he's not necessarily he represents kind of the new and the old and he's able to find this good balance. And so I think that that's what Tolstoy is going for. Now you could probably read those things a lot of different ways and you definitely could also read it as just um, sort of internal feelings, nothing to do with politics. Just, you know, he sees Natasha and now (laughs) his tree grows twigs, whatever you want to make of that. (laughs) Tolstoy's words, not mine. (laughs) <laughs> no one ever prepares you for how uncomfortably horny Tolstoy can be, and that's something that I need, think it needs to be made more aware going in. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a pretty horny tree, yeah. I would say. And you know, going on with Prince Andre to to extend your point about him being this conflagration of both the new and the old, I think his relationship with Speransky shows that well. Where Speransky is drawn to him because, um, well, he has. Balkonsky has implemented many of the changes that Speransky is interested in on a wider societal level. And keeping in mm-hmm. mind those, those reformers I talked about, uh, initially when, when Speransky talks about it, you know, um, Balkonsky talks about it favorably and Speransky sees in him a sort of like-minded liberal reformer. And then Balkonsky hedges and says, well, but that being said, we have to remember that Privilege is a right of nobility, and in order to maintain our aristocratic class, certain privileges should be conferred. So I'm not entirely for exams, because we need to make sure that our aristocratic society continues as intended. Um, And that's where Speransky disagrees, but still sees someone who can talk to. So, you know, again, we're seeing this like, he does put in place those reforms. He is that sort of person-minded, you know, somewhat favorably, but he also is completely for the maintenance of the extant social order. He's not looking to reform that too much uh, to, to your point about where he kind of stands. Yeah, it's interesting just because I, I didn't even know how much he believes in what he's saying because I know this quote you're talking about and I think it's at the time when he just decides, <laughs> you know what, I kind of want to neg Speransky. I don't want him to think that I'm too into him and his ideas. So every once in a while, I'm just going to drop something that makes me like a little bit different. He's kind of like, he's a little <laughs> bit of like a pick me aristocrat. Yeah, it's, it's and, what yeah, well, I'll say. I think that's reflected in his, his, his. He doesn't really stand for anything specifically. Um, he he does things, and that's kind of reflecting how he right. lives his life. How every five minutes he turns around, everything he suddenly believes mm-hmm. country life's no longer for me after two years. He goes to the city, he works hard, and then suddenly I think, as it said, he, you know, after he he, Speransky disappoints him by being a normal person. 
Andre recalls his labors in the legal code, how painstakingly he had translated the articles of Roman and French codes into Russian, and he felt ashamed of himself. Then he pictured, pictured vividly to himself uh, Bogucharovo, uh, his occupations in the country, his journey to Ryazan. He remembered the peasants and drawn the village elder, and mentally applying to them the personal rights he had divided into paragraphs, he felt astonished that he could have spent so much time on such useless work. But even that obsession with the countryside suddenly is turned on its head when he meets Natasha and he says, I'm going to marry, I'm going to marry Natasha. And then he also has to go abroad and all these things are happening. He's, he's in a middle ground in, in, in a lot of ways. And I think that's reflected in his life, how he can turn it around on a dime so often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Speransky is probably the most interesting character from this part in the sense that he's really not actually that interesting at all and he he has a couple things that i kind of like one that's to do with just him and another one that has to do with his relation to andre and kind of actually the structure of this part as a whole and the first one i will kind of drop in for our anna karenina fans i have a few of these little nuggets that i'm going to talk about today and also in our book club at the end of the month but for Speransky, boy, he just has <laughs> hands that Tolstoy is obsessed with. I mean, obsessed with them. He hates this guy's hands so much. And he, I think, is almost like a prototype of this character in Anna Karenina Grinevich, who has these fingernails that Levin is just obsessed with when he goes to visit Steva at his work. And to... Levin, it symbolizes somebody who doesn't do any manual labor at all. He's just kind of a desk guy. He, you know, doesn't really do anything practical. He just is one of these kind of government lackeys that collects a salary and that's basically it. And I think it is a little bit of a parallel with Speransky because he has this sort of really privileged position with the emperor. But ultimately, what they're doing is kind of like spinning in circles. There's not really a lot of happening. And I think it kind of is there to symbolize the way that he's a little bit maybe out of touch. Uh, you know, that he doesn't really have this connection to Russia in the same way that Andre does. Uh, not what I personally would think, I guess, but I think that's the way Tolstoy is kind of portraying it. And you can obviously feel free to disagree with me on that. But there's definitely the connection between those two characters, between War and Peace and Anna Karenina. So then rationality. We have to talk about rationality because this whole part of book book two, <laughs> part three, there we go. I'm confused on our numbering now, is structured around Prince Andre and his, his rational basis for thinking, as he kind of calls it, which should always be placed in heavy air quotes because, and there is one character I think who has this realization. I can't remember who it was. I should have written it down, but they said that, they kind of got the sense that when men talk about rationality, they're kind of using it to mean or to justify whatever it is that they're currently thinking. And this is the perfect encapsulation <laughs> of how rationality works for Prince Andre. Uh, he really, like you were talking about, he has these sort of plans and these ideas of how things should go and how his life should go. And then some outside force will come in and just completely blow it all away. And the biggest one in this chapter is obviously Natasha. But we should consider it again in how we're kind of 
looking at the action of the novel too. So Andre really thinks that he's kind of choosing his own path, his own course, but it really is these outside influences that are, that are coming in and just kind of pushing him in a certain direction. We already talked about how Pierre is the opposite of this. He's just the oaf that's kind of moving along and getting pushed and pulled to kind of wherever he's going. And he doesn't really accept any sort of, he doesn't really accept the idea that as an individual, he's really changing that much. He really acknowledges in this part, the fact that he is just awful at changing anything about himself or the world around him. And so this whole part is structured again, to return to that on Prince Andre or somebody setting up this sort of rationality and this sort of perfection, which is what he refers to this rational mode of thinking as and then it is torn down completely and very quickly so we've seen this happen with pierre and the masons now we've seen it happen with prince andre and this perfect rational being that he sees in speransky and these chapters completely coincide with each other that's the structure of it's like kind of interlacing building them up and then cutting them down. That's how Tolstoy is structuring this part. And that's an important point to notice as you're reading through a giant book that you may get lost in and think, why is anything happening when it does, right? We need to pay attention to more than just the chronological sequencing, but how Tolstoy actually structures them within the novel. It's, of course, intentional. So pay attention to it, why don't you? Pick up what Tolstoy is laying down. That's right. Now, you already mentioned the Masons, but you want to talk about Masons? That way, one of our Masonic followers can come and execute us <laughs> when we say something wrong. Yeah, yeah. For, for any Freemasons out there listening to us. Um... I do have a legitimate question if we do have Freemason listeners, which I'm just kind of guessing we probably do. Shoot us an email, sure. tipsytolstoy at gmail.com. I want to know how accurate is Tolstoy's uh, portrayal of the Masons. From what I understand, it seems to be generally... Uh, generally correct, but I'm not a Freemason, so I don't know. I'm just, for my own sake, I'm curious how he did. <laughs> I just, I'm just curious. I want to know. For any experts on Freemasonry in the Imperial Russian Empire... You're telling me we don't have be one expert on that? I bet we probably have, like, one guy who knows a lot about it in our audience. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. We have to have just such an eclectic audience, is my guess. <laughs> Sometimes people email us, and I'm like, ah, yes, there's our audience. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay, all right, I'll believe you. Yeah, yeah. for for the for that of you out there, and I'm sure you exist. Um, go ahead and let us know. But so for Freemasons, I'm interested in Freemasons as it relates to Pierre. Things do happen to him. He does. I, this is like the first time for me. Pierre does try to do something. Um, yeah, that's maybe not a major point, but it's it's he goes abroad for what a better part of a year, maybe more, mm -hmm. and then comes back and tries to take a stand and advocates for uh, a form of a relationship of Freemasonry to the world, which 200 years of conspiracy theories <laughs> have been made about, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> um, and then immediately everyone says, oh, you're you're an illuminist you you're a republican you want to overthrow the monarchy you want to overthrow our society which because the freemasons for the most part most of them are really just there as a social club that like an extra special social club that's spooky and you get to do rituals because that's cool to wear ropes with your buds that's not why they're there uh, aprons cameron Apron. <laughs> thank you <laughs> and 
with the slightest amount of pushback, Peter immediately decides, yeah, I'm wrong. <laughs> you know what? After after years of consideration, yes, I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. So he's not escaping this route because he takes, uh, like, yeah, a, more than a year to formulate this stand. And he takes it and it literally gets torn down in like an hour. <laughs> yep. Not getting away from it, but he does attempt in, in, the, in relation to these ideas, uh, which he's exposed to in Freemasonry. And, you know, when he goes into the West, I think it's kind of implied that he is exposed to a lot more sort of Republican ways of thinking or Illuminist ways of thinking, not necessarily by actual like Illuminati members, like the real Illuminati, not the uh, not the one of conspiracies. Um, but with that, I mean, that's kind of how also he came from the West after that education. So it's I don't even know if it's that he has his idea torn down as much as the I- idea of arguing kind of more generally gets pulled out from under him. And I think this is a point that's really big for Tolstoy, especially when considering reforms and political progress. Particularly, there's this really good quote that I like that's probably one of the most important, if not the most important, from this entire part, which reads, Pierre, for the first time, was struck by the endless variety of men's minds, which prevents the truth from ever appearing the same to any two persons. Even those members who seemed to be on his side understood him in their own way, with stipulations and modifications he could not agree to, since what he chiefly desired was to convey his thoughts to others exactly as he himself understood it. And so this is the problem for Pierre, is no one's really fundamentally understanding him. And this is like existential crisis mode for Tolstoy. These are like some serious roots of future crises that you're going to see. Um, I think that when you have this sort of in relation to Princess Maria, you already see where it's going. It's not going to end on a good path for Tolstoy, which obviously, not a surprise, it doesn't. And so Pierre kind of realizes here at this point where even if he was to, even if he was to explain a great idea that everybody agreed with, it doesn't really matter because they're not really fundamentally understanding his thoughts as he understands them. They're understanding his thoughts in their own way, which is just there's something different. There's a little bit of a disconnect there and it doesn't totally compute. And that's a really frustrating thing. And that's, I guess, something that's just very characteristic of human communication. Sucks, I say a man. Lot of this book is people. Yeah, <laughs> I think you could say a lot of this book is people not necessarily understand. Just lives, ships going past each other, chatting. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, it, it definitely is. A lot of this book is what is kind of left unsaid or what is communicated right non-verbally. And there are other ways, I think. I don't. Maybe Tolstoy would support this. I don't know. Just for me personally, there are other ways, I think, of understanding, right, that are not verbal, where you can have a more holistic or united sort of form of communication. Verbal is just, of course, one of many. So I don't think Mm -hmm. you personally need to go into an existential crisis, although you may if you want. I'm not here to stop you. (laughs) Yeah, if you personally want to do, take the Pierre route of becoming intensely jealous of someone that your wife is interested in and then also inducting that guy into your secret order. If you'd like to be Masonically cucked, you may. (laughs) <laughs> you may my favorite chuck tingle book um <laughs> anyway so let's let's move forward a little bit do you want to talk about um the rostovs or do you want to guy's name sounds like a disease 
Sorry, I just... <laughs> 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 Who am I talking about? I'll talk about whoever. Chuck uh, Tingle. <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a Chuck Tingle reading. Club. Chuck Tingle or Chuck Testa? One of the two. Chuck T- <laughs> <laughs> That's a blast from the past. Chuck Testa, certifiably um, hot, unexpectedly <laughs> hot, <laughs> blowing the scales <laughs> off the hotness. <laughs> you thought he was going to be not hot, Chuck Testa. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's talk about the Rostovs. Oh, please. Oh, my. Can we? I thought we were done with the Sonya kitten stuff. I thought we were done. (laughs) No. I hate. I didn't notice that the first time around. And now that I I hate that you've cursed me with that knowledge. Yeah. And I intentionally do not write that down because I know you're going to bring it up. Yeah. And I don't want to remember. So I didn't write down the quote in this. uh, My my sheet of notes that I send to the patrons every week when the episode comes out over at patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy. I did not include that quote because I just. Oh, every time I read it, I just shudder to myself. But I did <laughs> include one plea to Tolstoy, which was, please stop writing this. How about stop <laughs> writing as a whole? I know you're considered <laughs> one of the greatest authors to have ever lived, but consider stop. <laughs> I don't like it. What's that That, that um, Oscar Wilde quote from The Soul of a Man about um, the, the mass audiences or the general public swallows the classic soul without ever tasting them? Um, maybe the mass audiences are right in some cases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe they're right to con- to consume War and Peace without considering how unimaginably horny was yeah. it was for some parts of it. Yeah, I hate it. But okay, <laughs> we can talk a little bit about Natasha. Sure, perhaps let's do it. And ah, uh, wait, there was one thing I want to talk about with Speransky. Let's double back. Let's go back to Speransky real quick. Okay. Bef- okay, DJ, roll it on back. Roll it back, please. Yeah, thank you. Before <laughs> we get to Natasha, I just quickly want to talk one one very last thing which it happens at the end of the part which is why i have it at the very bottom of my notes because i'm but a fool and this happens when andre is kind of disillusioned with speronsky and this exact same thing happens in anna karenina which is so wonderful to see that tolstoy is just uh self-plagiarizing here he says that Speransky's high-pitched voice struck him unpleasantly and his incessant laughter had a false ring that grated on him. This is the exact same thing that happens to Anna after she meets Vronsky and then she goes back and she sees Karenin and she doesn't like the way that his ears look. This is the exact same thing where Tolstoy describes these sort of moments in our lives that can sort of change our whole perception of the world and then we come back and we noticed something new that wasn't there before. But it's not that it wasn't there before. Of course, his ears always looked like that. Or Speransky always had that same exact voice. And, you know, Andre would have noticed because he was talking to him. But there was something that happened that has fundamentally changed how he views the world. And now you can see it, you know, physically. And so Tolstoy does this across multiple books. Well, both books. And... It's just a super interesting thing that I picked up on when I read it this time. I was like, yes, I am a good reader. I'm getting a PhD. Good for me. I can do this thing that like four people care about. So that was fun. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're listening now, thanks for listening to that cool thing that I buried in the back of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) For for the percentage of you who make it all the way through our episodes. Nugget for you. Yep. (laughs) 
Big shout out. Big shout out. Big shout out. Okay, but we can talk <laughs> okay. about Natasha now. I'd like to. I'd like you to talk about Natasha. I'd like or, uh, or any any of them. Any of the, yeah, I mean, the fellas. Right. I mean, the most important for this part, the most important member of the Rostov family is Natasha. Yeah. Who? Um, I mean, I mean, I guess there is Vera, but even Tolstoy hates Vera. And I, <laughs> I say this because when when Andre is talking to Vera at her engagement party, it's not exactly that, but her and, and Berg's party, she's speaking to Andre about essentially marrying Natasha. And she says, that is true, Prince. In our days, continued Vera, mentioning <laughs> our days as people of limited intelligence are fond of doing, imagining they have discovered and appraised the particular peculiarities of our days in that human characteristics change with the times. That was good. That was um, my zinger of the week. I'm going to just put mm-hmm. that out there now. <laughs> One of the funnier quotes of the book, actually. Yeah, there, there, the, there are some good, there are some good zingers in this part. I've got another line, which is, Maybe one of the like funniest asides that do not have a major relationship okay. to the plot. Okay, uh, I've read since of uh, some Vonnegut. So I but, just didn't even write any notes about the Vera part. Yeah, which I think proves the point that Tolstoy was trying to make, which was just that the whole thing with their dinner party and why they're just such boring characters, Vera and Berg, is because all they're trying to do is replicate what already exists in society. That doesn't make a good novel. Nobody cares if you can just. Uh, write exactly what you're seeing somewhere else and the whole gist of that is that's all they're trying to do everything there was exactly as it was at every single other soiree that we had been to during this you know first half ish of the book it is nothing that significant other than vera being just horrible at conversing <laughs> with people <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, the whole party is, it's just Berg being happy that everything is, like you said, the same as every other uh, soiree, ball, party. Him thinking, I know better than that womanly Vera. Vera thinking, ah, I know better than that false rationality of of Berg. (laughs) And them both like talking over each other, uh, like literally falling over each other to entertain guests. As Andre comes in, they both are literally like both having different conversations, Andre at the same time. I think it actually may have been Vera that had that quote about rationality, if I'm not mistaken. That sounds right. Which actually is a pretty piercing insight to give to Vera. (laughs) All right. She she has her moments. She's right from time to time. But, you know, there's internal discord. But, you know, that's papered over because everything is just like everything else. Yeah. Um, Although I do get my quote about Natasha here that I... Is kind of the last thing I wanted to talk about personally. Yeah, it's good. And it has to do with the hot or not categorization of Tolstoy, <laughs> which I'm going to really try to make literary, but I do also believe that a pretty significant portion of it is is Tolstoy thinking this person is hot or not. And we also have this in Grossman. I remember a lot we had a discussion on this and I tried to come to his defense And I want to make it clear, I'm not doing this because I legitimately believe it, but I do think it's an interesting point to be made. So here's my best shot, which is that (laughs) in Tolstoy, I do see a distinction between attraction and beauty. Somebody can be attractive without being beautiful and vice versa. And beauty is also not a stagnant concept, something that fluctuates with every character in the book. And there is this quote here where 
Pierre is sitting at a card table playing cards at this party and he says that he could see Natasha and was struck by the curious change that had come over her since the night of the ball. She scarcely spoke and not only was she less pretty than she had been at the night of the ball, but she would have looked positively plain had it not been for her look of benign indifference to everything about her, which is First of all, I mean, wow, that is a really vivid picture of how she's sitting there looking. I can absolutely picture it in my mind. But so there's something going on. She's anxious. She's distressed. And this has this sort of impact on the way that she looks. And it is not beautiful. It is plain, which is she's never described as plain in the book. When... Pierre's wife is described, right? There is something different. There's not anything beautiful about her. Uh, there is something attractive about her. There is some, it, it triggers some sort of des- desire in Pierre. And right, this is different than this sort of innate quality of beauty that Tolstoy ascribes, I think, to Natasha. Not at this part, but something that comes back to her later. Uh, it is given to her oftentimes in relation directly to Prince Andre, which you know, that's food for thought. There's a lot that you can make out of that. But keep in mind, we're only halfway through the book. We've got we got some stuff coming up that's going to be pretty interesting <laughs> to talk about. So don't want to give it all away. I just kind of want to start to draw that distinction and mark that for people that are reading. I can definitely see why the women in this book kind of can come off at times as stereotypes and kind of flat predictable etc etc however it's interesting we'll see we'll see maybe (laughs) i don't know i'm trying (laughs) i i've tried to go for a reading where you know for let's take helena as an example where she's uh suddenly the kind of queen of petersburg society and when pierre comes in we start seeing a theoretically this is from the narrator's perspective of talking about how helena is really not that interesting really not that smart really none of the things that she's portrayed in society and on one level i can't help but feel that this is to some degree a voice of pierre like infiltrating the narrator's voice here called double voicing that's exactly what's happening yeah yeah perfect yeah so like it's you know who knows like helena but you know that mounts at the same time of well helena is is a karagan and to also to the point of Tolstoy writing families in ways that you see their characteristics rhyme with each other. Um, not, I, not, not that that's true in every family that everyone's character is going to rhyme like that. But with Tolstoy, you definitely see that as a consistent feature of how he writes families. So trying to um, understand characters both in the context of like kind of the, the main ones, you know, Andre, Pierre, Boris, Nikolai, well, I'm going to kind of describe the really main narrations too. And they're, the way they, they infect, so to speak, the way that the women are talked about, but also like, you know, Helena is, if we want to understand her relationship to the Kragans as one that is, she takes on their features, maybe not like how Pierre describes her, but <clears throat> someone who may not be as, maybe a little more cynical than is necessarily allowed by the narrative. If we, we want to extend her family out to her. So trying sure. to balance out those perspectives on, on these characters, especially women in, in the novel in general. Mm-hmm. But that was all sure. I really had to say for now, other than Maria's rough one. Yeah, that's about all I got to say on that one so far. Just, ooh, it's a rough one. I, I think it's kind of meant to point to, it's like, 
like I said, there's just something off about her, and I've never really been able to figure it out per se, but right, she just posits herself as this meek Christian. And then, right, there's a self-realization that she's not living up to the ideal in a lot of ways. And so it's curious to kind of look at, like, okay, then, <laughs> like, what's the other explanation for why you're doing it? And so there's... She's an interesting character. I think she's probably actually one of the more interesting ones in the novel. There's a lot of characters who kind of go on life and they change in rea- reaction to it. She is one of the one of the few opposites, I think, who's got that strong internal character mm-hmm. enough that I mean, maybe strong is the wrong word, but has an internal ideology and logic which propels her forward mm-hmm. against the tide, unlike a lot of other characters we talk about who are kind of responses to the external stimuli around them. Sure, sure. Which, I mean, that may change. I'm, we're only so far into the novel, but so far, sure. you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. For now, unless there's anything else you want to cover, I think this might be a good, good, good outro. Yeah, I'm ready to paste in that outro, but uh, I got to know, Cameron, on a scale from one to Yeltsin, how commercially drunk are you? <laughs> commercially speaking, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to put myself at, here at a zero because I only had a single Sapporo. Oh. Um, <laughs> so we're having we're having a, a light night and. Well, I'd, I'd ask you, oh, wait, hold on. Can I, can I, I was going to ask you what your zinger of the week is. Sure. I know we kind of went over it earlier. Can I, can I give you, posit to you one that we could. Yes. I, 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 forth for a zinger. immediately forgot because I have the brain of a goldfish, but I <laughs> really did want to hear what it was going to be. Um, so this is the intro to, I think this is, oh, you know, I, sorry, this, I think this might actually be in the next book. I started oh. reading forward. Um, however, I am going to include this. Okay. Uh, this is wrong, but it's just so funny. Okay. The Bible legend tells us that the absence of labor, idleness, was a condition of the first man's blessedness before the fall. Fallen man has retained a love of idleness, but the curse weighs on the race not only because we have to seek on our bread in the sweat of our brows, but because our moral nature is such that we cannot be both idle and at ease. An inner voice tells us that we are wrong in the wrong if we are idle. If a man could find a state in, in which he felt that... Uh, felt idle, and also that he was fulfilling his duty, he would have found one of the conditions of man's primitive blessedness. In such a state of obligatory and irreproachable idleness is the lot of a whole class, the military. The chief attraction <laughs> of military service has consisted and will consist in this compulsory and irreproachable idleness. <laughs> Which does not relate to anything else. That's just an introduction to Nikolai in the next part of him doing nothing. That's awesome. Which is maybe the funniest... Tolstoy just throws out side swipes. That's maybe like the funniest. I'm not going to call it a non sequitur, but bordering on a non sequitur since I think it's Breakfast of Champions, which Vonnegut just absolutely late. He hates Veterans Day. I don't know if you've ever read Breakfast of Champions, but in the beginning, he just lays out how much he hates Veterans Day and it doesn't really relate to anything. <laughs> um, it's just like because, you know, Vonnegut was a sure. soldier in World War II, but also staunchly anti-war. I'm sure most people over here, if you've been to an American school, probably had to read Slaughterhouse-Five. So you understand where Vonnegut's coming from, but he's really big on Armistice to stay, which veterans they replace. So even to some extent, you can see where that comes from, but that's just him throwing out side swipes in the same way that Tolstoy is throwing out side swipes here. So that's awesome. just an incredibly funny, <laughs> just not really related, just a good introduction to a character. <laughs> in one paragraph, not being about a specific person really tells you about what Nikolai's been doing for two years in the next part. Yeah, I mean, you basically, but that's a good transition to, uh, to next week. Mm-hmm. So, what are we covering? 
We're finishing book two, baby. We're doing it. Oh, yeah. We're doing it. We're doing the rest. Doing it. It's pretty big old chunk. So strap on your reading pants and uh, let's read it. And you might be thinking, hey, book two out of four done. We're halfway done. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, you forgot about the epilogues, you poor simple fool. <laughs> uh, but you'll have to stick with us around for that part. And before we let you go, we wanted to extend a quick thank you to all of our patrons who helped keep the podcast going. JG, Banana Karenina, Danielle, Margarita, Yulia, Amanda, John, Natalie, Khalil, Ben, James, Elizabeth, Shannon, Blake, Amanda, Maya, Packrob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Joanne, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Cole, Allison, Brandon, Arini, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Janice, Alice, Madeline, and Jeff. Uh, it's thanks to patrons like all of you that we can keep our podcast going on the current schedule we do because podcasting isn't free and grad school does not pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, keep our uh, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. And the music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast, on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy, or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. And you'll see us again soon.